Hi, everyone. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Katrina. Uh, can everyone grab their sermon outline now and their Bible as well? Uh, welcome if you've joined us for the first time. My name's Troy. I'm the minister of 630 Church here, and we have the great joy of looking through that passage together. I just want to name something up the front. Uh, everyone seems a bit kind of chilled tonight, a little bit maybe less excited. You have to get excited about Josiah tonight, King Josiah. He is exciting, and we're going to see just how exciting and uh, wonderful he is. So let's get excited, and uh, let's pray as we come to look at this wonderful passage in 2 Kings. <clears throat> Our gracious Father, we thank you again for your word, and we praise you that in the examples of our Old Testament saints, we things that we shouldn't do, we see things that we shouldn't do, and we also see things that we should do. We thank you for the wonderful example of Josiah. Help us now to explore uh, this now, your wonderful word in two Kings twenty-two and twenty-three, uh, and teach us about your character and your desires for us. And we pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we took a break from our Two Kings series to think about our vision as a church. I hope you really found that exciting. Phil, he spoke to us from the book of 1 Peter, and it's, it's kind of funny what he spoke about. It's kind of funny that he spoke about, what was it? Glorifying God in the ordinary things of living for Jesus, day to day. Now, why is that funny? That itself is not funny. Why is it funny? It's funny because we, today we look at someone who is far, far from ordinary. We get to see one of those few people who do extraordinary things for God, who do big, grand things for the Lord. Uh, so it's kind of funny to follow last week's talk with this week as we look at Josiah. Uh, but because we took that one-week break, and just as we have a week between each sermon, uh, let's do a bit of a recap. Let's remember where we're up to in 2 Kings. So remember, God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel have been destroyed. Uh, they've been destroyed by Assyria. They are no more. They've been mixed in with all the other nations. They're not a people anymore. And now, for the last few chapters of 2 Kings, we're just focused on the kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, they're not much better than Israel, but their kings are descendants of the great king David. And so, two weeks ago, when Phil spoke to us about uh, King Hezekiah, uh, we had all these terrible kings, and then along came King Hezekiah, the new David. He did what was right in the Lord's eyes, just as his father David. He went around smashing idols that led people away from God. And when he was in trouble, he, he turned to the Lord. He sought the Lord's word through the prophets. He did all these wonderful things. But for 300 years, there had not been a king like Hezekiah. But what happened after Hezekiah? Was there this long line of faithful, godly kings to lead God's people to worship God alone? You can probably guess the answer. No. See, after King Hezekiah, the greatest king since David, the greatest king after him came the very worst king that Judah and Israel ever had. Now, we didn't get to look at him last time. We're just kind of jumping over chapter 21 today. But if you read chapter 21 of 2 Kings, you will read about Manasseh. Just turn back now to 2 Kings 21 and look at the highlights, or really, the lowlights of Manasseh. What does Manasseh do? Manasseh, he undoes every single good thing that Hezekiah ever did. 
Everything that Hezekiah did, he did the opposite and to the extreme. Look at chapter 21, verse 3. He rebuilt the high places all over the nation. And he reestablished the altars for Baal, the false god. He made a shrine for Asherah and he worshipped all the stars in the sky. Look at verse 4. He built altars to these other gods in the Lord's temple of all places. And then look at verse 6. This is horrific. This is the king of God's people doing this. Verse 6. He made his son pass through the fire, burned him alive. And he practiced witchcraft, divination, consulted mediums and, mediums and spiritists. He did a great amount of evil. Look down at verse 16. Manasseh had no qualms about killing people who stood in his way. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. I told you it was a low lights reel. This is actually the very lowest point in all of Judah's history. Everything good that Hezekiah did, Manasseh, is, he undoes it. And so what does God say about all this? We're racing through this chapter, chapter 21. He says, because Manasseh's done all this evil, look at verse 12. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. God, in his righteousness, he promises to destroy Judah just as he did for Israel in the north. And so that's now what we're waiting for in two kings. And then after Manasseh, well, we get his son, Amon. Amon is just as bad as Manasseh. He carries on all those evil things his dad did. And then we get Josiah, the exciting king, Josiah, in today's chapters. And just like Hezekiah, he's one of the good kings. Josiah, he gets a, and just like Hezekiah, he gets a few chapters dedicated to him that we're going to look at now. So come with me. Uh, keep your Bible open. We're going to go beyond this, those opening verses that we read before and look at 2 Kings 22 and 23. You see, what, what do we get after evil king Manasseh and Amon? Well, as usual, we're introduced to the king. Uh, look at uh, chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Josiah was just eight years old when he became king. And reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. And walked in all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or to the left. You see, after all the bad kings, after the very worst, Manasseh and Amon, we get another breath of fresh air. We get another David, another Hezekiah. And in the, in the book of Chronicles, we actually get more detail about Josiah. Uh, he became king when he was just eight, uh, but he was converted. He became, he became a believer in God at about 16 years old, uh, which is actually just amazing if you think about the Manassified world that he lived in, where everyone worshipped idols and no one almost cared about God. And even more amazing than that, when he, when he was 20 years old, Josiah, when he was 20, he became a man, he came into his power as king, and he started undoing all the idolatry, cleansing the whole land, stopping everything that Manasseh had done. And we'll get to this later, uh, we'll see it more later on, but it's just amazing, isn't it? How, how did he do this in a Manassified world full of idolatry? Well, I think it's because he actually listened to God's prophets. He listened to Zephaniah, 
And he listened to the great prophet Jeremiah. And so Josiah, he starts off well in these opening words. From a young age, uh, he's, he's a godly man. But then Josiah has this life-changing moment. And that's what takes up the whole rest of the chapter. Josiah and the lost book of the law. So look at verse 3. Something amazing happens when Josiah is just 25 years old, as many of you are, or even younger. Uh, He's just 25, and look at verse 3. So it's the 18th year of Josiah uh, as king, and he sends his officials. I'm not going to name all those officials. Katrina did a good job. I'm not going to embarrass myself by naming them all. He sends his officials to go and make arrangements for the Lord's temple to be repaired. So this is Josiah doing what is right, fixing up the Lord's temple so that people can come and worship him rightly. So Josiah, he's doing this wonderful thing, but then the life-changing event happens. Look at verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, told Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Can you see what's happened in that verse? See, Manasseh was so evil, he led Judah so far astray from God, they didn't even have the Old Testament law anymore. No one had a copy, and the one copy that was left was stuffed in a storeroom somewhere, gathering dust, and then other stuff was thrown on top of it, and so it's only as they kind of were clearing out a storeroom that they realized it was there. The written voice of God, the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt and made them a nation in his beautiful promised land, the one who blessed them and gave them his words and his way of life, the one who appeared on Mount Sinai with fire and lightning and thick darkness, his word was just gone, lost. And that there is a first powerful lesson in this chapter. It only takes one generation to lose the written word, the written voice of God. You see it in the scriptures, you see it here, you see it in church history as well. It only takes one generation who doesn't take God's word seriously, and then the next generation don't even know what it is. We can't be that generation. Don't forget this and lose it under a pile of stuff. No, open it. Meditate it on, on, on it day and night. Feed on it in your heart and mind and pass it on to other people and to the next generation. See, if you have the privilege of being or becoming a parent or a godparent, what an incredible responsibility that you have. Or if you're a youth leader here, as we saw on our video before, or you're a kids leader or you're a gospel team leader, I praise God for you, but, but don't take that responsibility for granted. Work hard at passing on God's words. Or beyond that, all of us can ask the question, who can I share God's word with? Who can I teach? What opportunities can I take to pass on the words of eternal life? Don't let God's voice sit closed and buried and and forgotten. Don't think it's someone else's job to do this. What can you do to make God's word known and loved and obeyed. Lord, help us to pass on your written verse. Amen? Amen. Okay, back to Josiah now. The lost book of the law is discovered, and straight away the officials, they know what they must do. They send it up the chain right to the top to the king. 
So verse 9 and 10, Shaphan, the official, he goes to Josiah. He says, look, the work on the temple that you asked us to do, it's all happening. It's all good. Oh, and, and we also found a book in the temple. Let me read it for you. And Shaphan, he reads out the book of God's law. Was it just one part of it? Was it the whole? Uh, we don't know. But in that moment, Josiah's life is changed forever. Have you ever had that moment of conviction, that life-changing moment when you read or heard the very words of God? How did it make you feel? How did you respond? Look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. You can see his emotion, can't you? This is not just intellectual for Josiah. This, his heart is torn, and so he tears his clothes. But, but his response is not just emotional, it's also action. Straight away, he sends his officials to go and do something about it. Look at verse 13. Josiah says, Go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people and all the people of Judah, about the instruction in this book. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because we have not obeyed the words of this book. See, Josiah is a man who fears the Lord, literally fears the Lord and his wrath. As God's law is read out, he instantly knows we have not done this. We have not kept this. We have been unfaithful. And so he fears for the coming judgment of God. He's cut to the heart. Bit of thunder. Well timed. <laughs> that happens every now and then in our Sydney evening weather. Uh, so he does what is right. He turns to the Lord and he does this by seeking out the prophet. Uh, and so Josiah's officials, they go and see Huldah the prophetess. Uh, they go and see Huldah and she gives God's word on the matter. So just scan down now what she says. Look at verse 15 and on. So through her, God says, I will fulfill all the words that you have read in this book, Josiah. My wrath, he says, my just burning anger will be kindled and will not be quenched. It's coming. But God says, look at verse 19. I think we've got some more thunder on the way. Look at verse 19. This is the nice part, not the thunderous part. God says to Josiah, because your heart was tender... And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard these things. And because you've torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard you. Therefore, because of your response, Josiah, I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm bringing on this place. So Josiah's response is, we see it there, we see it in God's words, a tender heart. He's humbled before God with, with mourning and weeping. It's worth asking the question, is your heart like the heart of Josiah? Tender at the word of God. Humble in light of his power and majesty. See, how, how, how clear and present in your mind is the holiness of God and the, the disgusting nature of sin and the coming wrath on all the nations. Do you ever weep at your sin or the sin of the world? And that God is robbed of the glory that he deserves. Lord, I pray, give us the same heart as Josiah, the same response to your word.
Amen. Amen. Back to the story again. Because it's actually what happens next that shows us that Josiah, he is actually the greatest king of Judah, except perhaps for David. Because the Lord hears and sees Josiah and shows him grace. Josiah will die before these things come on the people of Judah. He will not have the pain of experiencing this himself, which is a gracious thing that God is doing for Josiah. He will be spared of the ravages of war and judgment. But what does Josiah do when he hears this news? Think about this. What did Hezekiah do when the other good king, when God told him that judgment would come after his lifetime? Hezekiah said, oh well, it's all going to be good in my lifetime. Peace and security for me, I don't care what happens after me. But what does Josiah do? He hears that disaster is coming. God's justice will rightly fall, but not in his lifetime. And it still changes his life then and there and for the rest of his days. He doesn't say, oh, well, who cares? I'll be fine. No, he is more concerned with being faithful. He's more concerned about God's glory than himself. He's greater even than Hezekiah. He's a true example to us of doing what glorifies God regardless of what it means or what it costs for us. It's about finding our highest joy in glorifying God, not living for ourselves. So instead of sitting back and thinking, it's all G for me, uh, he gets to work. So have a look at chapter 23. This is now our next part of the passage. We see Josiah's large, this massive list of all the reforms that he did. So now take a breath, give yourself a little nudge. We're going to keep going for a little bit longer. In, jo- in chapter 23, we get Josiah's reforms. And if you think at this point of your life that you are a high achiever, you're not. <laughs> because look at just what Josiah does. Now, we don't have time to get into everything here, but come along with a quick tour of chapter 23. What does Josiah do? Look at verse 1 to 3. See, he gathers all the nation to the temple, and he reads out God's law beginning to end. And he makes a covenant to keep God's commands with all his heart and with all his mind. And jump down to verse 21. Uh, He says, let's celebrate the biggest and best Passover festival that we've ever had. And so they do it. Let's remember God's salvation. He puts God's word and God's salvation back in the center of the nation's life. And then as we read through the rest of the chapter, Josiah goes on his rampage against idolatry. He cleanses the whole land. He undoes everything, everything that Manasseh had done. So first, he cleanses Judah and the temple. So we're going to race through. Look at verse 4. He strips the temples of all the idols and he burns them to ashes. Verse 5, he does away with idolatrous priests. Verse 7, he tears down the homes of religious prostitutes. Verse 8, he tears down all the high places that were used for worship in all the land. Every one of them. Verse 10, he gets rid of Topheth so that people can't can't sacrifice their children to Molech anymore. That's sickening God, Molech. Verse 11, he gets rid of horses dedicated to the sun. Verses 12 to 14, he undoes all the idolatry of all the previous kings. King Ahaz, King Manasseh, even King Solomon, from 300 years earlier, 
He undoes it all. He cleanses all of Judah. He cuts down all the false worship and idolatry. And when he does this, you might notice as you read over it, he doesn't just tear these things down and be like, cool, that's, I'm done. No, no, he grinds them to dust. Or he burns them to ashes. And then he throws that dust and he throws that ashes into the valley. Or he throws it onto people's graves. Or he takes human bones and then burns them on these altars and on these high places. And he does all of this so that these things can never, ever, ever be used to worship false gods ever again. These places will never be used like this again, he says. They've been in contact with the dead. And so now no one wants to touch them. See, he just goes all out. He holds nothing back. But then it seems that even that is not enough for King Josiah. Because he even goes outside his kingdom and cleanses the northern kingdom of Israel. He starts going up into, not his territory, and smashing and burning idols there as well. And then he goes personal, right down into the lives and homes of people. Look at verse 24. In addition, Josiah removed the mediums, the spiritists, those who their job was idolatry. The household idols, the things that people kept in the privacy of their house, the images, and all the detestable things that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. He goes further than, than, than anyone. In all these reforms, no one does more than Josiah. He really is the greatest king, along with King David. As we finish off the story and kind of bring it together and think what it means for us, there's actually just heaps of things that we could learn. We've already learned some things from Josiah. We could learn so many more things. But let's finish with three. Three lessons we learn from the story of Josiah. Number one, Josiah lives out God's word, doesn't he? His faithful response to finding God's law All his reforms, all his achievements, all of them are a true living out of the very written voice of God. Look at how the story concludes in verse 25. It says, Before him, before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, sorry, with all his mind and all his heart, and with all his strength, according to all the law of Moses. And no one like him arose after him. He takes God's word seriously. He does God's word faithfully. He humbles himself before the written voice of God. And he doesn't, he doesn't take shortcuts. He doesn't say, well, I don't really know what to do. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, he doesn't say, well, I know what I should do, but I can't really be bothered today. I'm too busy. Or he doesn't say, well, I don't really know what God wants, and so I don't, won't do anything. And he doesn't say, well, it doesn't really help me, so why would I do it? No, he's he's a true hero of the faith. He strives to live out every little command and every word from the mouth of God, all for his glory. He's a wonderful example and just a massive challenge, massive challenge to us. Josiah challenges every one of us. He challenges us yet again to repent of our half-hearted ways of following God's word. He challenges us to follow uh, his humble example and his zeal to live out God's word every day. Lord God, give us a heart like Josiah to live out your word.
Amen. So number one, he lives out God's word. Number two, he hates idolatry. Josiah shows us that idolatry truly is disgusting. And that idols are good for nothing except burning and smashing. You may not have noticed, because we raced through, some of the words in this chapter that describe idols and idolatry. False gods are not called inconvenient. They're not called distracting. No, the words used are detestable, abomination. Idolatry is so disgusting that it provokes the Lord. And so if you think Josiah is over the top here, you've got it the wrong way around. It's in black and white here that Josiah got it right. Because when you, when you think about it, think about it. Because when you know the God of the universe, when, when you know he's the creator and we are his creatures, when you see his goodness and power and majesty and his holiness and you see his love and mercy and kindness, well, then you know that trading him for a block of wood or a piece of stone is ridiculous. And an awful thing to do. Do you feel that way about the, idol- the idolatry that's all around us in our world? Does idolatry in our world hurt your soul? When you see friends or family members around you, when you see them turn to religion and turn to worshipping false gods or ancestors, does it bother you? Or if you travel around Australia or overseas as a tourist and you go past temples and shrines, maybe you feel intrigued about the culture and the practices. Shouldn't we instead be saddened that they are lost and that the one true God is just being ignored? Or when you see in others or even in yourself idolatry of the heart that that chases after the gods of wealth and career and money and sex and power, when you see that in you or you see that around you, does it burn within you? Are you brought to tears because the glorious God is exchanged for something created? This is just a really small example of this. But um, recently our three-year-old Harley, she's been noticing the waving cats in all the restaurants and shops. Um, do you know those? They're called lucky cats or beckoning cats. Apparently they're meant to bring good luck and bring in customers. The cat's like calling them in, come and eat here. Harley sees them and she thinks they're really funny. Uh, and when she first noticed them, I was like, oh yeah, look at them. Like, you know, they're cute and funny, aren't they? But as I thought about it, I- I'm not sure that's what I want her to think about them. I've been wondering about saying instead, yeah, yeah, it might look cute and funny. But actually, it's really sad. It's really sad and it's horrible that, that people turn to this superstition instead of turning to the God who can really care for them and who holds all things in his hands. Like I said, that's just one small example of how easy it is to accept the idolatry that's all around us. Instead, shouldn't we be sad, even disgusted? Not hating on people, not being judgmental of them, but knowing that that is not what God desires. And that his glory is far greater than any idol. And so if idolatry takes root in your heart, pull it out, roots and all. Be Josiah, smash and burn the idol, literally if you can. And if you see idolatry in God's people, especially, speak up. 
Be Josiah, take action, encourage them to do the same. And if you talk to an unbeliever, someone who doesn't follow Jesus, someone who, who worships a false god, whatever that god is, tell them about the one true God and urge them to turn from the dead false idols they serve and to serve the living and true God. And tell them how. Tell them that Jesus died to pay for their sin of idolatry and forgives all who come to him. Lord God, like Josiah, help us to hate and flee from idolatry. Amen. That's number two, we've got one more. Josiah hates idolatry, but last, number three, he isn't the Messiah. As great as Josiah is, if you look down at verse 29, Josiah meets his tragic end. See, verse 29, he tries to stop the king of Egypt uh, going to help Assyria, and he dies in battle. And so he's buried with the rest of Judah's kings. And it's a tragic end to a great man. Uh, And in the book of Chronicles, we learn that the prophet Jeremiah sung at his funeral. And we learn that songs were written about Josiah and passed down the generations. That's how great a king Josiah was. The greatest of kings. He did extraordinary things. He achieved massive things. But as great as Josiah was, just think about this. Do you know the answer to this question? How many times is Josiah mentioned in the New Testament? Once. In just one place. The greatest king, Josiah, is mentioned. Just once. This hero of the faith, no other king like him in Israel, he gets one mention. And where is it? The one place that Josiah is mentioned is in the family line of Jesus. King Jesus. Because as great as Josiah is, as a wonderful example, as a, as a contagion of godliness, he should be for us. As great as he is, he's a shadow. And Jesus is the reality. See, King Jesus never needed to tear his clothes in repentance and mourning. He never sinned. But he did weep at the rejection of God's people, the rejection that they rejected God with. King Jesus, who, who, like Josiah, he cleansed the temple, didn't he? He kicked out those who worshipped money instead of the one true God. King Jesus, who knew and loved and obeyed every word of the written voice of God, and who challenged even Satan himself and said, I won't do what you say because it is written. King Jesus, who didn't just smash idols in Israel for 30 years, but who has been smashing idols in human hearts for 2,000 years, and even in our hearts today. Lord God, thank you for King Josiah. But we thank you even more for King Jesus. Grow our trust in him, and grow us more like him, and it's in his name that we can pray, and that we do pray. Amen.